we continue with our series on repentance. Last week, we um, did an introduction to the doctrine of repentance. Why did you say that it is important that we study this? scriptures witness to it is <clears throat> a clear witness of the scriptures to this matter of repentance um, so we must consider it we must understand what it is so that it's important that we consider this because it's, it's a primary cleansing agent when we repent we are sanctified we are cleansed then what did we say repentance is not so that it's not necessarily being terrified that uh, it's possible to be terrified and not to be truly repentant because of the magnitude of the issue at the moment mm-hmm. what else I say that it's not making vows against sin so many vows and 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 one may make so many vows without really being repentant as such not hating his sin and wanting to turn from it mm-hmm. then what did you say it's not thirdly and lastly yeah sorry it's, it's not departing from many sinful tendencies you may leave many sins but uh, still have others so that what comprises true repentance is a leaving of all the sins that we know we have not leaving others and um, still embracing others today I'd like us to consider what repentance is or to put it in form of a question, what is repentance? What is repentance? Um, now, as you seek to understand this whole matter of repentance, I like to be clear that there is a distinction between regeneration and repentance. <clears throat> Who can tell me what the order of salvation is? What is the order of salvation? What is the process that the sinner goes through 
and then eventually they are saved. What happens to the sinner from the moment they, they hear the gospel to the moment that they are saved? Mm-hmm. They are regenerated. So that they are able to receive the word and mm-hmm. respond to it in faith. Mm-hmm. When they respond in faith, what happens? They repent and uh, they are justified. They are justified. Justification. So we have regeneration and then justification and then. And then. No. Adoption. They are adopted into the family of God when they are justified. And then? Sanctification. And then lastly, they are glorified. Glorification. So, so when, we, when you're talking of repentance, it's important that we get that there's a distinction between repentance and regeneration. People do not repent for them to be regenerated. Um, rather, the opposite happens. They are regenerated, and hence, they do what? They repent. They confess their sin, they turn away from it. So that regeneration is a work of God. Lest we fall into the error of mixing the concept of salvation with our own works, because, you know, when you repent... There is your activity there, right? There is you going to God and asking God to forgive you and um, seeking to turn away from sin. There is the activity of man which is enabled by God. But in regeneration, it's all a work of God. God is the one that regenerates, that grants the new birth. God is the one that awakens the sinner, grants that effectual call, that call which makes the sinner able to come out of the grave. So that however much the brothers and sisters of, uh, the, the sisters of Lazarus would want to call him out of the grave, he would not come out, right? Because he was dead. But then when Jesus comes and calls him out, Lazarus is able to hear because the call of Christ is different. It's not only outward, it's also inward. Uh, it's effectual. It grants an effect. The sinner is able to hear when the master calls him. So, so regeneration grants the new birth. When you're born again, you repent and you have faith. In this case now, when we talk of repentance, we, we mean that he's, he turns away from sin. So, so I'd like you to also notice before we go further that repentance is more than confession. So that more often than not we fall into errors when we think of this matter of confession, of of, of repentance rather, because we think of it as confessing only. So that we think that because we have confessed our sin, we have repented. Because we have said, I have done this and this, please forgive me. We think that now we have repented. And while it is true that Part of repenting is confessing, which we're going to see. Um, It's important to say that repentance is more than confession. 
repentance is a turning away from sin and a turning to Christ. Our Baptist Catechism grants the question, what is repentance unto life? And the answer is given, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose and endeavor after new obedience. So all that we will cover in this, uh, in understanding what repentance is, is encompassed there. It's a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred for his sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose and endeavor after new obedience. Thomas Watson says, quote, Repentance is a grace of God's Spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. End quote. That's a simple way of, of understanding it. Eh? That it's a, it's a grace of God's Spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled. Something happens on the inside which grants effect where? On the outside. They are outwardly, visibly reformed. And then uh, Watson says that repentance is a spiritual medicine made up of six ingredients. And I'd like for us to consider three of those ingredients and then the, three, the other three next week. So that's uh, those are the ones that we will use to understand this idea of repentance. It says, repentance has these six ingredients. Number one, sight of sin. Number two, sorrow for sin. Number three, confession of sin. Four, shame for sin. Five, hatred for sin. And six, turning from sin. So we'll consider three of them, the first three. What is repentance? Number one, true repentance has a clear sight of sin. True repentance has a clear sight of sin. Go with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke 15. In Luke 15, we are told that we are given these <clears throat> parables by our Lord which are um, describing this person that is lost, that comes back. So we are given the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the par parable of the prodigal son. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and 
and, and, and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to, into his fields to feed pigs. And he was, he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. Verse 17 is what I want us to uh, think about. But when he came to himself, see that language? That's a language of repentance. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Now what I'd like for you to see there is that the prodigal son sees his sin. Some translations render verse 17, when he came to his senses, the ESV translates it here, when he came to himself. And that's to mean when he sees his sin, when he sees his evil, he repents. Psalm 51. Uh, that beloved text to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Look at verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. See that language? Then he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. You hear that language? And in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David is shown his sin and he sees it. The prophet Nathan comes to him, tells him the evil that he has done, and David sees sin. Now, true repentance is characterized by a clear sight of sin. A man must first recognize and consider what his sin is before they can, before they can be said to be truly repenting or truly repentant. A man must know the plague of his heart. They must see that thing that God detests, that God hates, before they can be humbled for it. Before we move into the step, the next step of humility, sorrow, and all those things that we will consider, there must be first of all sight of sin. This is what we do when we, when we go out for evangelism, right? What do we seek to do first? We seek to show the sinner that he is a sinner so that they see their sin because there will be, there will be no true repentance if there is no sight for sin. Now, have you sight for your sins? Are you sure that you have a clear sight of what your sin is? How it looks like, Thomas Watson says, quote, The first created thing God made was light. So the first thing in a penitent is illumination. 
Now you are light in the Lord. And, and, and there he quotes Ephesians 5 verse 8. And then he says, The eye is made both for seeing and weeping. Seen must first be seen. It must first be you know, beheld before it is wept for. End quote. So he says, before you go on to repent, to turn away from it, or to put it differently, if you're going to repent or turn away from it, what must happen? You must see your sin. There must be sight for sin. So more often than not, people do not turn away from their sin, which is what we are calling repentance. Why? Because they have not seen it. Because they do not have a clear sight of their sin. It's not visible to them. So that where there is no sight of sin, my brethren, there can be no true repentance. However much we, I don't know, we weep, we are terrified, we make vows, it doesn't matter. If there is no clear sight for what has been done as being evil, the sinfulness of sin, there can be no true repentance. More often than not, when we think of sin, or when we have a clear sight of sin, it is the sin of others that we see. Right? We are, we are very clear in our sight when seeing the sins of others. And I'd like you to, I'd like you to, to, um, to, to ponder and think that you shouldn't be so keen to see faults in others huh? and fail to see your own faults, your own sins, those that are in you. Don't, don't think so highly of yourself, so much so that you, you lack this grace of repentance. Because when you, you remember when our pastor was taking us through the uh, teaching on humility, at, at the core of what it means to be humble is 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 uh, that lowliness, meekness. Don't think so highly of yourself that you lack the grace of repentance. Because if you think so highly of yourself, are you going to repent? Are you going to see as if there's any wrong with you? Are you going to see sin? High thoughts of oneself obscure uh, our sight of sin. They blur our vision. And, and, and therefore we, we fail to repent. Don't, don't think that you are so good eh, and you have such a good heart because if you do this, you will not see sin in your life. And hence, you will rarely feel the need to repent. You'll rarely feel like you need to repent. You, you, won't, you won't see the need. And so... What we are saying when we are talking about true repentance is that number one, there must be a clear sight of sin. So that there is a turning away from it. So that there is that, that inward humility that produces visible reformation, if you will. There must be sight for sin. And isn't this, isn't this a problem of many who will perish? They will not see their, their sin. However much the preacher bangs, bangs it on their heads, they're not going to see their sin. 
They're not going to admit that they have wronged. They continue in their sin. Now, we who are Christians are different because God has regenerated us. The moment God wakes us up, we repent. Right? Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We have that famous sermon there. Saves 3,000 souls. The Bible says in verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. They were added. About 3,000 souls that day. You see, these people must have seen their, seen their sin, right? They must have realized, oh no, we are sinners. <clears throat> we have sinned terribly by crucifying the righteous one. Because that's what Peter tells, tells them in his sermon. You took the son of God, you killed him. God revealed him to you, bore many signs and wonders. You sinned. They behold their sin. Because of that, then they are able to repent. <clears throat> there must be a clear sight of sin. Is there a question or a comment? Question? So the turning away comes after the sight, eh? because they may they may see their sin and not repent. Yeah. Yes. Without them turning away. 
Yes. We can say that they, they do because if, if, they, if we have told, if they, are, they don't know, we tell them, right? And then if we tell them, and then they, they, they do nothing with it, what do we call that? That person is? Is what? Unrepentant. Yes. Because you expect that at the sight of sin, when we realize that we have sinned, we turn away. So that when we don't do it, it's no good seeing. But then, my, my point is, this is where it begins. By seeing sin. Having a clear view of sin. distinction between two believers who have been shown their sins and they have seen it and they are willing to repent. The magnitude the magnitude with which they understand that sin may not be the same. Um, but then the aim of seeing that we are sinners is so that we repent. So that uh, true repentance is characteristic of actually seeing sin. So that you may claim to repent, but then your, repentant, your repentance may be proved to be uh, false because you didn't quite see sin. You didn't see the magnitude of sin. Now, and then let's make distinction between a non-believer and a believer so that... Um, when the non-believer does not does not repent of their sin it's all sorts of things combined they love their sin um, their master is sin um, they will not part with sin no matter what um, so, so that they are in a perpetual state of loving sin so that uh, no amount of convincing will show them their sin. And that's why while we tell sinners their sins or unbelievers their sins, we pray for them. Right? Because they are natural men. Spiritual things are, cannot be spiritual to them. Um, so that, yeah, so there's, a, there's an aspect in which uh, sight for sin that leads to true repentance uh, comes with the magnitude of it, if that's what you're asking. So that you may, you may claim to see sin, but when you're not repenting, the question would be, have you really seen it? That's what you're asking, eh? So we would ask, have you really understood what it is that this sin is? 
because we expect that at the sight of sin, when one sees their sin, when one is told that they have sinned, and they behold it, we expect that they repent. They turn away from it. Now, one may say that David knew his sin, right? He, one may say that, while continuing in his, in his sinfulness. But then, what happens? There's a clarity of sight that comes to him when Nathan brings that, uh, that illustration. Even though he knew that he was sinning, he, he continued in his sin. But then the, this man of God comes and provides clarity for sin. When he's able to understand what it is that he's being told, he turns away from it. He repents. Any other question or comment? No? Okay. Number two. True repentance has proper sorrow for sin. So the first thing that we've seen is that true repentance has a clear sight of sin so that there can be no true repentance where sin is not properly beheld. Number two, true repentance has proper sorrow for sin. Proper sorrow for sin. And what I have in mind here when I say proper is that appropriate understanding of sin that leads to an appropriate action. In this case, the action is sorrow for sin. Appropriately understanding what sin is, which leads to an appropriate action which is sorrow for sin. It would be true to say that there can be no proper sorrow for sin if there is no clear sight of sin. So the aim is to have true repentance, to understand what repentance is. And it begins by seeing that you have sinned. The magnitude of sin. And what this is that we are calling sin. And then, we get to now the, the step of properly, appropriately, uh, having sorrow for sin. Again, Psalm 51. Psalm 51. <clears throat> David tells God to have mercy on him. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. So there is that sight for sin. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. 
And then he says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Are those words of someone who is rejoicing? Yes? No. These are words of someone who is penitent. They are sorrowful. They are full of sorrow for their sin. Because true repentance has proper sorrow for sin. You are not truly repentant if there is no appropriate sorrow in your heart for sin. For sin. It must, it, must be, it must be said that because true repentance, in the words of Jeremy Walker, is a thorough and radical change of the heart that results in a thorough and radical change of life, then a heart that is radically changed must be sorrowful. That, that radical heart that produces a radical kind of life because they have understood sin, it must be sorrowful. There must be sorrow for sin. Not, not, not the attitude of, uh, well, I have sinned. I have seen my sin. And that's just it. There must be appropriate, proper sorrow for sin. Sin pierces the heart of the one who is truly repentant. Isn't that what we have read in Acts? When they, when they had what they had done to the Lord of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ, they were cut to the heart. And what, what, what do they do? They repent. They repent. They ask the apostles, what shall we do? The apostles say, repent. And that's exactly what they do. They turn from their sin. They cast it away. So that the sin that you commit, if you are going to truly repent of it, to truly turn away from it, it must pierce your heart and that produces sorrow. Pierces the heart of the one who is truly repentant. Unless they, they cannot help but be sorrowful for it. If there is no sorrow in your heart for sin that you have done, how sure are you that you are truly repenting? That you have a resolve to turn away from it? When there is no sorrow for, for, for what you've done. And, and this sorrow for sin is not, is not superficial. Hmm? It's what we know in the Bible as brokenness. You know that word, eh? Look at um, verse, verse 17. Verse 16 of Psalm 51. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. That sorrow for sin is sin in brokenness. So that the, the sorrow for sin is not, is, is, is not a thing that is superficial. 
Now, all sorrow for sin is not true sorrow. You may have sorrow for sin that is not a true um, a, a true sorrow for sin or what the Bible call, calls godly grief, godly sorrow. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. The Apostle Paul tells us there that there is something called godly grief, godly sorrow. Second Corinthians chapter 7 verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are uh, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. Now, uh, look at verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, now he's writing to the, the Corinthians a second letter, and he's telling them, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did, I, I, I did regret it, for I see that the uh, that I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you are grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly, worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Just leave it. Leave it. So, so the point there is that uh, there is a false sorrow and a true sorrow. Um, it tells us that godly grief produces repentance. It produces a turning away from sin, a hating of sin um, this happens because it causes the heart to ache because of sin this is grief that comes from within because it has a clear sight of sin it understands what sin is it understands who has been wronged or sinned against isn't that what David says he says 
against you. You only have I sinned. So that there is a proper view, sight of sin, which grants a proper uh, uh, hatred for sin, a proper sorrow for it. You realize what sin does um, in attacking God, as it were. This grief is godly because it makes, it makes a man feel his repentance must be more notorious than his sin. This uh, grief is godly because um, it remains, it continues, it abides. It's a godly kind of sorrow because it continues. The, the, the false one, the worldly one, it's just for a moment. Um, Sometimes one feels that he has to make up for the evils done. Like Zacchaeus. It's a godly grief. It makes a man feel that the sins I have committed must be atoned for. Now that's not to say that we atone for our own sins. But that's to say that there is a godly sorrow in the way we view our sin. And it is that godly sorrow that grants true repentance. This, godly, this grief is godly um, because it, it, it is habitual. It continues. Um, because sin is ever-present, because sin quickly comes back to us, godly grief abides in the heart of the Christian. There's a continual um, kind of sorrowing um, so that there is... There's a brokenness of heart because I know I am a sinner. And that drives me to continuously repent, turn away from my sin, confess my sin. When this godly grief is present, the Apostle Paul tells us there that it produces repentance. Uh, it grants, uh, it grants an, an inward work which uh, grants an outward reformation, which is what repentance is. Is there any comment or question before you consider the last thing? Any, any question or comment? Feel free to ask a question or make a comment as we continue. So we've seen that true repentance has a clear sight of sin. See this from the, the prodigal son, from David. Then we've seen that true repentance has a proper sorrow for sin. Uh, that brokenness of heart. Uh, when we see sin properly, we repent. Properly, appropriately. When we when we have true godly grief, then Paul says it produces repentance that leads to salvation. It leads to a running to the Lord Jesus Christ, um, the Savior of sinners. Now, thirdly and lastly, true repentance bursts out in confession of sin. 
true repentance burst out in confession of sin. When one has had a clear sight of, of sin, they have that godly grief. Their repentance is seen to be true in their confession. When they see their sin, they, they can't help but cry for it. Understanding what it is. Understanding that God hates it. Therefore, they burst out in confession of sin. They understand what it is that they have done. They understand to whom it has been committed against. Go with me to Psalm 51 again. I'd just like, like to read this. A few verses here. I'd like you to hear how David burst out in confession to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Does that sound like a man who, is, who wants to hide his sin anymore? The way, the way he was before? No. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You see, he realizes who has been wronged. Um, and then he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. It goes on, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide, hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. That, that, that's, that's not a person who is... Um, who is willing to hide his sins anymore. Hmm? Everywhere we see true repentance in the word of God, there is that outburst of confession, confessing our sins. And it is, it is unmistakable. When the Israelites have sinned against God, when they are turning back to God, there is, there is a clear confessing of sin. Of that which they have done against God this matter of confession is important because some want to hide their sins yet claim to truly have repented hmm? others confess uh, others confess their sins by halves nusu nusu yeah? you don't conf confess everything you, you know, as though God doesn't know everything so this matter of confession is important because Others are not very clear in their confessions. Huh? While others seek to justify their wrongs. While claiming to confess at the same time. So, so it's important that we know that when we are truly repenting, we are confessing our sins. We are being humble. We are admitting to what we have done. And we are going to God like David and say, saying, saying to God, have mercy on me. I know my transgressions. This is what I have done. 
forgive me of my sins. Um, this voluntary confession is seen in that remorsefulness. That sorrow for sin grants it, it grants a voluntary confession, confessing of sin. Now, notice that David David goes to God so that uh, we don't think that the the person who has been primarily offended is not is not the person you have wronged. The person who has primarily been wronged is God. So we go to him. Of course, that's not to say that we don't go to the one that we have wronged, but that we have a proper view of God and his law and his requirements. And we repent. Um, so that there is that volunta- voluntary action on your part to go to God and ask God to forgive you. Um, that sincerity of heart um, to what we are repenting about. The sinner is sure that they have sinned. Right? And so then they go to God. They, they ask God to forgive them. They confess their sin because they know that they have sinned. They are sure that they have sinned. Now, rather than generalizing our, our sins, in true repentance, they, there is... There is a, a, a particular mentioning of our sins to God. Asking God to forgive us for every of our sins. Um, there's a particular humility in the way the truly repentant sees his sin. He's not seeking to brush over them. He knows that this is what I've done against God. And this is what, therefore, I'm asking God to forgive me uh, about. A true penitent confesses sin in, um, in acknowledging that sin has polluted them. They confess sin because they realize what sin has done. Not only to God, but also to them. And of course, it has effects on others as well. So it's important that we confess our sins, the sins that we've done. So what we are calling repentance is that grace of God, saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, out of an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, they do what? With grief and hatred for their sin, turn from it to God. So that as we continue to consider this matter of repentance, uh, we've gotten to that point of confessing. We will see next week how it continues to progress so that it's not only a sight for sin, it's not only a sorrow for sin, it's not only a confessing of sin, it actually uh, grants that outward reformation. Um, as Thomas Watson says there, repentance is a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. They are changed. There's an, there's an inward change, a radical inward change that produces a radical outward lifestyle. Now, as I finish, I'd like to say that um, 
our sins are only forgiven in Christ. God does not forgive people who go to him upon any other merit. God forgives only those who are depending upon the Lord Jesus Christ. All the sins that we have committed um, when we were unbelievers are forgiven in Christ. All the sins that we will ever commit as Christians, they will only be forgiven in Christ. So that while God forgives us past, present, and future, um, when we repent of our sins now that we are believers, when we confess our sins, and the Bible says that He is faithful and just to forgive us, He does so because of the activity of the advocate. You know that text there? First John chapter 2. John wishes that we do not sin, but when we sin, he says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. It's upon his merit alone that God will forgive us. When we are vowing to turn away from sin, we are not turning away from sin for the sake of it. We are turning away from sin to turn to Christ, to go to the Savior, to go to the only one who is able to cleanse, right? The only one who is able to present us blameless before the Father. Otherwise, however much we turn away from sin, if we are not turning to Christ, we are not repenting biblically. Right? We are not doing, uh, we are not doing biblical repentance. And one could well say that it's not repentance. Uh, something else. Is there anyone that has a question or a comment? I'd like to end it there. And then we will continue. We will continue with that next week, Lord willing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercies to us. Thank you for your kindness in um, allowing that we consider such a pertinent uh, matter like this of repentance. Lord, we thank you that repentance is a saving grace. It does not come from within us. It's a grace that you grant so that we are able to see our sins. We are able to see your masses in Christ. And we are able to turn away from our sin, having hated it. We ask that you may help us to be truly repentant. Keep us from that, um, that error or that deception that when we have just confessed our sins, we have repented. Help us to know that there needs to be an outward reformation. Um, for, us to to, for us to say that we have truly repented. So grant, grant that grace. Help your people, Lord, to be conformed into the image and likeness of Christ. Grant that because the Christian life is a life of repentance, help us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. 
to continue faithfully following you, taking up our crosses daily, acknowledging that we are sinners who are in need of Christ one day after another. Lead us in your paths of righteousness. Grant that our worship today would come to you um, as our fresh fragrance, that you would receive it. Because all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.